why do you want to get married? This is one of my favorite questions to ask engaged couples during pre-marriage. It didn't come from the brilliant machinations of my own mind. It's something I stole from our own Pastor Mike. And the different answers you get are fascinating. All sorts of different reasons that people want to be married from good answers to bad. I won't share them all here with you this morning. So I would encourage you to consider if you are married, why did you want to get married? If you're not married yet, why do you want to get married? Or maybe why do you not want to get married? These questions are appropriate to wrestle with. I had to wrestle with the question myself at least two times in my life. The first was at the age of 19, the summer after my freshman year of college. I hadn't dated anyone in high school, partially because I was from a small town, and uh, when you're in a small town, everyone that's in your class kind of seems like a sister, and it's a little awkward. Um, But in addition to that, I don't think any of them were believers, and so I hadn't dated anybody in high school, so I assumed, like any good-natured 18-year-old, that as soon as I went off to college, I would meet someone and I would date them, right? And happily ever laughter and all of that. The summer after my freshman year, after having dated no one my freshman year, I had to wrestle with God on what that meant for my life. The plans that I had for my life, the future that I thought for sure God had in store for me, that he had somehow failed to realize in my freshman year of college. And I had to ask the question, why do I want to get married so badly? What is it that I am seeking in that? Like most newlyweds, the second time I had to wrestle with this question was immediately after marrying Jenna. Coming to terms with the realities of the challenges and joys of marriage, as many of you know, and asking myself the question, why is it that I wanted to be married so badly? What am I actually seeking in this relationship? Is it my own desires and my own wants and my own self-fulfillment, or is it dying to myself, loving my spouse, and glorifying God? I don't know where each of us find ourselves this morning, but these are the sort of questions that Paul wrestles with in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The infinitely practical question of to get married or not to get married that Paul deals with at the end of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. I encourage you to read along with me. We're going to be reading verses 25 through 40 and considering these questions of to marry or not to marry together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if you, the betrothed mar- woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, 
but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and his determination, or has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his beloved or his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to praise you here this morning. We've sung of your praises. We've considered your body and blood in taking of communion together. We've taken time to consider the church throughout the world and the struggles and the challenges they face. But in everything we've done, we've exalted Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we continue in our service, as we study your word together, that would continue. That we would continue to praise and worship you through the reading and the study of your word. Lord, guide our discussion, guide my words and my thoughts this morning. Be in the hearts and minds of those that are sitting here today. Help us to hear and to see truths from your word. Lord, help us to have a little perspective. Help this text to put the perspective in our minds that you have of the shortness and the brevity of this life, of the significance of eternity, and of those that are lost and need to know you. Lord, we pray that you would guide this time together and we dedicate it to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that Paul has been addressing the Corinthian church's questions about sexuality and marriage. After reminding them of the proper way to view the circumstances of their lives in perspective, Paul moves on to address their second actual question this morning. This question of to marry or not to marry. What should I do as a single person in this church? And I think Paul gives us two things that we desperately need, even in our world today. Two realities about singleness that we need to take into consideration. The first is, we need an eternal perspective on singleness. We need to consider our singleness or our marital status in light of eternity. And secondly, we need a realistic perspective on singleness. A eternal perspective and a realistic perspective. We're going to take a look at both of those things as we walk through the text this morning. First, an eternal perspective on singleness. Look at verse 25. Paul tips his hand that he's bringing up another subject here by saying, now concerning the betrothed. You'll note consistently through 1 Corinthians that as he brings up new subjects, he'll say, now concerning this. Again, remember, the Corinthians had written him a letter asking him a series of questions, asking for his perspective on them. He addresses this new question. He addresses the betrothed, if you will. Now, some of your Bibles may have different translations here. The ESV translates it, the betrothed. The NIV and the NASB translate it, virgins. And that's because, though in English those terms are very, very clear, in Greek the term is more ambiguous. I think this term is best taken as speaking to those that are engaged or unmarried. Probably he has women in mind specifically here. Because he's addressing the bad teaching of those false teachers that were in this church. Remember, we talked when we started into this section about the asceticism, this idea that there were teachers in the church that were saying, you're more holy if you totally disengage from the forms and functions of this world. If you 
totally abstain from any sort of sexual activity. So he's addressing that situation. But note his tone here. I love the way Paul addresses this. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul's humility here is astounding. Why does Paul say it this way? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? He made a similar comment starting into chapter 7, okay? When he said something to the effect of, I give my own judgment, not the Lord's, okay? And what we talked about there was this is equally as inspired. All of 1 Corinthians is inspired, but Paul is not drawing directly from a teaching, a quotation of Jesus himself, okay? So he's saying, here's the judgment, but he's writing an inspired work, so we need to take it into consideration. But note Paul's gracious tone. Paul, who is known for his commands and his straightforward things that he tells churches throughout his books to do, addresses this in a much more open-handed way. He's speaking of an area of prudence and Christian liberty here. The ascetics, the teachers that were saying all marriage, all sexual activity is wrong, he's contradicting that and he's saying, look, this is an area where there's some room for understanding and there's some room for differences. He's saying this is an area, he's later on going to say, I don't want to lay any burden on you. We'll talk about that when we get to that. But starting in verse 26, Paul gives specific encouragement and then moves to more general principle. First, the specific encouragement, and we're going to see Two truths here about singleness. Two truths that we need to recognize about singleness. First, singleness is preferable to marriage at times. Singleness is preferable to marriage. Look at the situation that he's speaking into. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In view of the present distress. This is another text that the commentators are a bit divided on. Is he speaking of a more general distress, the idea of the last days, the last troubles that the church experiences? Or does he have a specific distress, such as a a famine or a persecution or a affront to the church in mind? I think more likely is the latter, this idea that he has something specific. There was some circumstance, we don't know exactly what, that the church in Corinth was experiencing. He was saying, in light of the situation in which you're in, it's better for some to remain single. Part of the reason I make this argument is because in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, Paul makes almost the exact opposite encouragement. Writing to Timothy, he says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So it seems as if Paul's encouragement here to remain as you are is a contextually driven encouragement. It's based upon the circumstances and the situation in which he's writing. And his exhortation is then, remain as you are. There are times when it is better that you remain as you are. Remember, he said that before in verse 17, in verse 20, and in verse 24, he said, it is better to remain as you are. He's going to say it again here in verse 40 at the end of this chapter. So Paul gives this contextual situational instruction. His instruction there is to remain as you are. What does he mean by that? Look at verse 27. He goes on. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Pretty straightforward, right? You're engaged to a woman. Don't seek to be free from that. If you are unbound, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. This is not Paul's endorsement of the derogatory term ball and chain, okay? It's not what he's talking about here. But he's saying there is that attachment. We talked about it two weeks ago. There is that obligation and that implication of being married. 
So, for those of you that are wondering, practically speaking, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. This contextual instruction. And then he offers a condition. Look at verse 28. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. He says, your marital status, your marital situation is not a sin. In direct contradiction to what the ascetic teachers were teaching. They were saying, if you marry, if you engage in sexual activity, you're sinning, you're less Christian, you're less honorable. It says to marry is no sin. It's not a sin. Your circumstances aren't the biggest thing. Remember, he says your circumstances aren't the biggest thing. Your response and your obedience to God's command are the biggest thing. I think here's Paul's point. There are times when not marrying might be wiser. Though neither being married nor being single is a sin. That's not the priority. And we need to hear this in our modern-day culture at times, where we absolutize our marital status. Some of us absolutize being married as if the moment you're married, that's when you've arrived as a Christian. Others of us absolutize our singleness as if God's ultimate call for our life is the autonomy and freedom of singleness when it's just a reflection of our own selfishness. Paul speaks to both extremes. He says, your marital status is not the biggest thing. It's not the priority, though there are times when not marrying might be wiser. But Paul goes on from this, and he highlights another reality about singleness. He says, yet, look back at verse 28, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Second truth we realize about singleness is that singleness prevents the worldly troubles of marriage. And there are some of you sitting out there today who are going, yes, amen. That's true, and some of you know it more than others. There is a certain challenge, there is a trouble that comes with being married. Troubles like, what do we do with our finances? How do we get two people on the same page about money? What do we do with our time? Who do we spend it with? Where do we spend it? What do we commit to? How do we communicate with somebody that seems to not understand anything I'm saying? Those of you that are married know what I'm talking about. And just, just for clarity here, my wife is sitting right here in the front, okay? We have a good marriage, okay? I'm not, I'm not, don't take away from this that it's like marriage is negative. That's not Paul's point. That's not my point. But there are challenges. We talked about it two weeks ago. Then you add kids to that and you get more challenges. And then you have all the inevitable conflicts and forgiveness and tears and reconciliation and all those things that go with fighting about all the things we've just talked about. There are things that are harder about marriage. There are troubles that come with being married. I have had multiple conversations with newlyweds at times when they come to me and they're like, Brad, I know we talked about money and we talked about time and we talked about communication and all of these things in pre-marriage, but I never anticipate just how much time we would have to spend talking about these things. All of these conversations take so much time, they take so much devotion, they take so much commitment. Think about it practically. For those of you that are single, if you decide next month that you want to go on vacation for Christmas, you can probably do so, right? Like, I'm going to ask my boss for some time off, assuming he says I can have some time off. I'm going to go on vacation. Don't have to approve the budget with anybody. It's my finances. As opposed to, it takes the logistics of a small country to get my family on vacation. <laughs> if we decide to bring them with us, then we have to pack for them, 
and we have to plan for them, and we have to try and fit all that in the minivan, and we have to figure out where we're going to stay, and we have to make sure that it's approved by the kids, and then we have to fight about which restaurant we're going to stop at for lunch on the trip, and then we have to deal with the discipline of that. Or worse yet, we could leave them home and try to find someone to watch them for a week so that we can go on vacation. The logistics of being married and having children has some troubles that go along with it. It's not bad, but he says, let's be practical about this. There are some worldly troubles that come with being married, and his desire is to spare them from that, right? Verse 28, he says, and I would spare you that. Staying single means fewer worldly troubles. Different worldly troubles, I'm not saying being single is easy, but it means fewer worldly troubles. It means avoiding some of these family, marital sort of troubles. And from there, Paul shifts then into a general principle. He backs off here a minute, and he adds something that seems a little strange to us. If you were reading this text in advance of this week's message, you maybe found yourself reading verses 29 through 31 and going, why here, Paul? Right? He, he talks about at the end of verse 28, I would spare you those worldly troubles. And then down in 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. That seems to flow quite naturally. But then we get verses 29 through 31, kind of right here, sandwiched in the middle of our text, where Paul talks to a general principle that's really important for us to pick up on. Really important for us to pick on. Let me read it. He says this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul moves from the specific details of the challenges of being married to step back and say, look, the time is short. The reason I'm giving you this as encouragement is because the time is very short. This word time can also be translated opportunity. The opportunity, the time for ministry and engagement and sharing the gospel with a lost world is very very short. Your time is limited. No one knows the number of hours you have left in your life, but it is limited. As James will say in his book, right, our lives are like a vapor. It's a wisp that's passing away. The time is limited. And so he encourages us to live like eternity is a reality. To live like today isn't all there is because today will be gone Shortly. It says, though who has wives live like they had done. And he's spoken to the way we should interact with our wives in marriage two weeks ago. Okay? So he's not jettisoning that idea, but he's saying, live for something eternal. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Mourning is a reality of this life today, but it won't be in eternity. Those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. We won't be rejoicing over the job promotion, over the good grade we got in school, over whatever things consume our time and attention in eternity the things that consume our time and attention today. Those who buy as though they had no goods, some of us need to be reminded of that. The things we possess in our business or in our private lives will not last into eternity. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. We as Christians fundamentally don't belong in this world because we owe our allegiance to something greater. We owe our allegiance to a future that makes no sense in light of this world. It says the form of this world is passing away. The things we see with our eyes, 
the things we consume our schedules and our money and our time and our talents and our treasures with won't last into eternity. The present form of this world is passing away. His principle here is that as Christians, we are called to make use of the opportunities of this life without paying ultimate allegiance to this world or the things in it. We make use of the opportunities and the time and the things that we have for eternal significance, but we don't owe our ultimate allegiance to those things. We need to embrace an eternal perspective on our lives. We need to recognize that what we see today isn't all there is, even as that relates to our marital status. To miss that point, to miss the eternal perspective on our lives would be very similar. I don't know how many of you have had this sort of an experience in your work where you have missed a memo and you have spent the entire work or week working on the project that you thought for sure the deadline was Friday for. So you plugged away, you got the project done, you walk into your, your boss's office and you say, look, I got it done on time. And he says, didn't you get the memo? We're not doing that project anymore. That's, that's not a thing. I don't know why you spent all your time working on something that's not really relevant anymore. Paul's saying is to spend our time focused on temporal things when eternity is what matters is exactly like that. How would you feel someday standing before Christ one day and realizing that you spent all your time working on the wrong things? You spent all your time working on things that passed away with the form of this world. For those of you that are married, this means that we do not immortalize our marriage and our family. I'm not saying we don't prioritize our marriage and our family, but we do not immortalize our marriage and our family. The day-in and day-out activities of our family and our marriage won't last forever. Your marriage won't last forever. I'm not saying it's not important but it's not eternal. The diapers, the discipline, the diplomas, the disappointments of your children, they will not last forever. Your children's sports careers won't last forever. I know that comes as a shocker to some of you. No, it came as a shock to me when I found out that I wasn't going to play Husker football when I grew up. No, that doesn't come as a shock to any of you out there, right? things aren't eternal. Only souls will last into eternity. Only the people we see will last forever. What are you going to spend your limited time on? What are you going to focus the limited time, the brevity of your life on? Practically, for those of you that are single, I think Paul's encouragement to you would be enjoy and make the most of this season. Don't waste this season pining away for something different. Enjoy what God has blessed you with. There are unique opportunities, unique privileges, unique lighter loads that come with being single. Embrace that reality in your life. And if you desire to be married and the opportunity arises, go for it. It's not a sin. But don't idolize marriage. Don't make it an idol that you frame your worldview and your day in and day activities around. Because the marriages that exist here in this room will end when one of them passes away. Even our marriages are not eternal. Don't 
idolize marriage. And as a church, we have to recognize that what this fundamentally means is that we have more in common as marrieds and singles than we have different. For those of you that are married, you have more in common in the gospel with the single person sitting across the room here than you do with the married couple outside the church. For those of you that are single, you fundamentally have more in common with the married couple that seems to make no sense to you at all in your current season of life than you do with the single person outside the church. Because in the gospel, your identity is grounded in something eternal. So as a church, we have to recognize that what makes us the same, our faith in Christ, is more significant than what makes us different. We need an eternal perspective to guide our relational decisions. But Paul goes on to address the details of this life. Paul is not just working in philosophical realities. He deals with realistic perspectives on singleness. Look at verse 32 through 40, and we see four more truths about singleness. First, verse 32, 33, and 34, singleness avoids anxieties of marriage. Paul says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of this Lord, or the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He says, I want you to be free from the anxieties and the realities of being married. This is very similar to what he was saying before, right? There's challengers, there's anxieties that come with being married. For those of you that are unmarried, you don't lay awake at night trying to figure out, should I wake up my spouse so we can resolve the fight we just had before you fell asleep, or should I go to sleep? You don't have that anxiety. You don't find yourself at work wondering what's troubling your spouse from that strange text message you got halfway through the week. You're free from these anxieties, and you are free to focus on how to be holy in body and spirit. You have the opportunity and the freedom of mental energy to focus on your, focus, your main love, your relationship with Christ. Staying single means fewer anxieties and distractions. It's just practical. Paul's not pie in the sky here. He's saying the reality of it is there's challenges that come with being married. Which leads into Paul's fourth truth about singleness, verse 35. Singleness provokes, promotes undivided devotion to the Lord. Think about this, verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul reasons very differently than the false teachers that he's contradicting here. Rather than saying, any activity in this area is wrong, in order to be ultra-spiritual, you have to refrain from all of this stuff, Paul says, I'm not going to lay any restraint on you. This isn't a command, it's not a prescription, but the benefit to you is the promotion of good order and securing your undivided devotion to the Lord. Is your undivided devotion to the Lord your top priority? That's what he's encouraging them to consider. Or is your undivided devotion to your spouse, to your girlfriend, to your boyfriend, or to the girlfriend or boyfriend you don't yet have your top priority? Staying single gives you the chance to focus more on your relationship with Christ. The fact of the matter is, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're single and you have a ministry opportunity to go run to, you can do it. You don't have to worry, are the kids going to be okay? Is the wife okay with what you're doing? You go. You can focus more on your relationship with Christ. But you may find yourself saying, but what if I'm struggling with that 
and my singleness is the distraction. Paul addresses that as well. Look at verses 32 through 38, and we see that singleness means prioritizing obedience over desires. Paul says, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, then it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Here Paul describes two scenarios, and we talked about these a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to come back to them here. Those that are struggling with improper behavior and those that are exemplifying self-control. Now, I need to issue a warning here. This is another passage, and, and if you read commentators, one of the things they will note is, this may be the trickiest linguistic text in all of 1 Corinthians. Okay, It's a tricky one to understand. I've already read through it in the ESV. NASB translates a little bit differently. If you're going from NASB, notice the differences here as I read this. This is what you'll read if you have the NASB translation. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Did you notice the difference? Essentially, you've got two options on this text, very similar to the first verse when we dealt with the betrothed idea. You've got an ambiguous term in the Greek, and you've got contextually Bible interpreters or translators trying to wrestle with this reality. Two options. Either Paul is speaking to these young betrothed couples, and he's saying to the man probably that was experiencing most of the struggle with this, if this is your situation, if you are struggling with your mind and your heart, go ahead and get married. Or, in a culture that arranged marriages was not uncommon, he's speaking to the fathers and saying, don't believe these ascetic teachers. You have the freedom to let your daughters get married. The language is a bit ambiguous here. I prefer, as I said before, this betrothed language, speaking to those that are interested in being married, not so much to the fathers addressing their daughters here, both contextually and linguistically. I think that's preferable. I think the ESV got this part of the translation right. Okay? And if you want to discuss that more, we can talk more about the Greek afterward, though I am no perfect Greek scholar here. Okay? And part of the reason I'm not overly concerned about it is it's really in some ways a moot point. Right? Unless there's someone here today that is either arranging the marriage of their daughter or is having their marriage arranged by their father. Hands? The reality is, in our culture, our parents don't arrange our marriages. We're the ones making these decisions. So whether he's speaking to the fathers arranging the marriage of their daughters, or whether he's speaking to the couple themselves, the point is he's speaking to those of us that are making these decisions, which is us, right? And he's saying, if while you're engaged, this temptation to sin is too strong, go ahead and get married. It is not sin. Now, I want to be very clear. With a text like this, it is really easy to abuse it and to say, I do not possess self-control, therefore, I need to get married. It's not the solution to this problem. That is not Paul's solution to a lack of self-control. But he's also infinitely practical in realizing that people have temptations, and he's saying, this is a part of our lives. But it is not an endorsement of a lack of self-control if you're single. 
He's not giving anyone an excuse to be dominated by their sexual desires and lust. That is not what Paul is saying here. We cannot use this text this way. But he offers the alternative. Look back at verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having this his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. He said, but if you're convicted to stay single, if you think that is the best devotion to God, go for it. Go for it. He summarizes it in verse 38 by saying, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He says, the point is your undivided devotion to the Lord. The point is not your marital status. You can be married and be devoted to the Lord. You can be unmarried and be devoted to the Lord. You can be married and not devoted to the Lord, and your spouse is your God. You can be unmarried and not devoted to the Lord, and you are your God. The point isn't your marital status. But singleness does mean prioritizing obedience over our personal desires. And that's something we should all strive for. Finally, Paul addresses one more practical situation and isn't exactly the way I would end a discussion on singleness and marriage, but he does so. In verse 39 and 40, he reminds us that every marriage ends in singleness. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So there's another situation I need to address, those that are widows and widowers in this situation. If your spouse dies, you have the freedom to remarry. Only, he offers a condition here, in the Lord. Only you must marry a believer. Right? It's interesting, we talk about the unequally yoked thing when it comes to marrying unbelievers, but his language here is actually stronger. Only it must be a believer. Doesn't take a whole lot of explanation, but those of you that are kids, those of you that are single, those of you that are youth, as you consider who you would marry, number one priority, they must be a believer. This is easy when it's theoretical. It's hard when it's practical. This is the number one priority. And his final encouragement again, though I think she is happier if she remains as she is. Marriage and singleness aren't ultimate and eternal. He says every marriage will end with the death of a spouse. That's how marriages end. That is part of the reality. Short of Christ returning, that is a reality we all need to take into consideration. So Paul encourages us to recognize the practical realities of these various stages in life and not to romanticize them. But we listen to a lot of love songs and we watch a lot of movies on romance and love. And we get this idea that it's all rainbows and unicorns and it's all honeymoon forever. That's not what marriage is really like. And he reminds those that are single in the body about that. As an interesting point of inquiry, just Google forever love songs this afternoon when you go home. It's amazing the way our society ultimate. Ultimizes? I don't think, I don't know. You know what I mean. They make it ultimate. As if marriage is the ultimate reality. That's not what he's talking about. It's not. It matters. He's not downplaying the significance of marriage, but it's not ultimate. What does that mean for those of you that are married? This is a grass is always greener sort of situation for all of us. For those of us that are married, we tend to romanticize singleness. Again, I'm not saying 
that my wife and I don't have a good marriage. That's not what I'm saying. But there are days when I'm at my limit for noise, and I'm like, to just sit alone in my apartment. And I romanticize that reality. And I forget the good blessings of the circumstances God has placed me in today. And it's true for those of you that are single too. Don't romanticize marriage as if you feel incomplete or you're not satisfied today with your life and if you get married, somehow that's going to make you satisfied. As if marriage is just going to be pie in the sky, every day's a wonderful honeymoon sort of like, that's not it. For those of you that are young and are considering the qualities of who you would marry, I'd encourage you to consider, like, if I were to ask you what is your type, if physical things come to your mind first, you need to take a moment and pause and reflect on that. Consider the qualities of who you would marry, and their relationship with Christ and their character is more important than the way they look. I'm not saying that physical realities don't matter, but if the first thing that's at the top of your list is what color their hair is, that's an indication that you're pursuing the wrong thing. Ultimately, all of us should be asking ourselves the question, will this change in our situation help or hinder my ministry and devotion to Christ? Will marrying this person help or hinder my ministry and devotion to Christ? Each one of us should be asking that question and having a realistic perspective guiding our relational decisions. Here's the key point. Here's, I think, Paul's point from this text. We will appreciate singleness, both ours and others, to the degree that we embrace God's priorities for all of life, to the degree that we have both an eternal and a practical picture of what marriage and singleness is really about. And with this, Paul brings this second section of Corinthians to a close, talking about these disagreements over morality. Paul encourages holiness over convenience in every circumstance of life when it deals with church discipline situations, when dealing with the legal matters of our lives, when dealing with marriage and singleness and sexuality, he prioritizes holiness over convenience. And so it seemed appropriate to wrap up chapters 5, 6, and 7 with a quote I ran into this week. I love the way he puts this. Do we teach our people holiness or wholeness? The two are not the same. Wholeness inevitably focuses on a better, more comfortable, more pleasant, more spiritually convenient life now. It maximizes its efforts in promoting change within social conditions and one's situation in order to bring about the most immediate and pleasing happiness. In other words, wholeness is essentially self-serving. Holiness, however, sees God's pleasure as the foremost concern of every situation, however unpleasant. It views eternity, not now, as the only sufficient goal for a believer to live for. And it ransacks every situation as an opportunity to serve God while becoming enamored with none of them. Are you ransacking every circumstance of your life as an opportunity to serve God, or are you becoming enamored with the circumstances of this life? Let's pray. Father, this is a deeply personal topic. It's a challenging one, and it runs in front of our culture. I pray that these words that were spoken this morning, your word, would not fall on deaf ears. 
but that we would seek to conform our lives and the circumstances of our lives to what would most glorify you, not what would be most convenient and expeditious and happy for us. Lord, help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to recognize what you've called us to and how short this life is. How brief our opportunity for impact and to glorify you is. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.